0: Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Um, I turn your attention in this series now to the command to love one another. Its context comes in John chapter 13, uh, and it is some of the most astounding verses in all of Scripture. So uh, let's read these verses together from John 13, uh, 34 through 35, and let's, let's again read them aloud. These are familiar words but they are Christ focused in the upper room before he's ready to go to the cross for his disciples together a new command i give you love one another as i have loved you so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another all right this morning i'm going to ask you to help me a little bit i so I'm going to ask for a little audience participation and I'm going to say a business and you're going to tell me what they're known for. And I want you just to shout out what comes to mind, okay? So if I say Auntie Anne's, pretzels. If I say Starbucks, if I say Chick-fil-A, if I say JCPenney, oh, clothes. Mm, That's pretty good. If I say Costco, Okay, that one got a little dispersed, right? <laughs> so um, some of these businesses put all of their eggs in one basket, right? You can't really imagine, what if, what if there were no chicken at Chick-fil-A? I mean, they might occasionally run out of that incredible chocolate peppermint milkshake, which is absolutely a stolen recipe from heaven, I'm convinced. Um, but if they had no chicken, you know, you've got no Chick-fil-A, right? Uh, can you imagine going up to Starbucks and they're saying, we are fresh out of all coffee? Like they may not have the little yogurt cups, they may not have you know, but but coffee—it's it's the signature kind of marketing plan. Their name means that, uh, and you can't imagine an Auntie Anne's stand, which somebody gave me a card and I I enjoyed a pretzel this week. Uh, carb uh, rush in the midst of moving was wonderful, but if they said we're out of pretzels, say, you're an, this is Auntie Anne's and you don't have pretzels. <laughs> Well, there are organizations that focus on one central thing. And I just want to say that when it comes to Jesus' words to his disciples, Jesus is saying the enterprise of his followers is really going to bank and put all their eggs, all of their investment, into one singular apologetic, which means defense or credibility of the faith, hallmark, and that hallmark is, as you've been paying attention to this service, uh, this series is love. This, this in some ways, when you look at it, almost seems a little bit unwise, if, if, if we can be honest. Like Jesus is really in this passage giving non-believers the authority and the right to judge his followers based on one um, attribute. He says, by this all... including encompassing the entire world will know that you are my disciples some people say that this is kind of an unusual passage or or not as inspiring a passage as like when Matthew says that we're to love our enemies because that's like included everybody it says okay well here's what I expect here it looks like Jesus is narrowing the focus to a little club no 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 It may narrow in its focus, but it's not restrictive in its force and impact because Jesus says by this all people can be reached by Christ followers having a visible distinctive of love. So I want you to realize when it comes to to this attribute, love is to the church as chicken is to Chick-fil-A or coffee is to Starbucks. And by this, it means a particular kind of love. Jesus said this was a new command. Now look, I'm sure his disciples were kind of saying, new command, love one another. I mean, like everything I needed to know about that responsibility I learned in kindergarten, right? Like, like I, now what do you mean new? But here's what's new about it. It's new in terms of priority and it's new in terms of the intensity. He says, love one another, not as you love yourself, but he says, love one another as I have loved you. The world has never seen a force of love as Jesus loves. So we're going to look at three things this morning. I just thought I'd do something different and have a three-point sermon um, for a change. Uh, We're going to look at the force of love, the focus of love, and the fruit of love. The force of love, the focus of love, and the fruit of love. So uh, the first thing is the, the force of love. Jesus is using love as the unforced, uncoercive power of his kingdom. Uh, The unique thing about Christianity is that no one is ever coerced, shamed, bullied, cornered into a relationship with Christ. His kingdom does not function that way. Jesus gets people to lay down their weapons, lay down their defenses, lay down their hiding from Him, not by any kind of forceful powers, but by the melting and loving, disarming power of change. Uh, when uh, I was in college, I actually was, was a bit of an Aesop's fable nerd. I don't know if you've ever read, like the, the actual original Aesop's fables. Uh, are not actually for kids. <laughs> um, they're kind of sinister in a way. And actually, I was delighted when in my classical studies course we we got to read them in their original. And there was one that is really stayed with me, and it is the the contest between the sun and the wind. Do you do you guys remember that from Aesop's Fables? Any raised on Aesop's Fables? There is a contest between the sun and the wind, and they each uh, were seeking to prove their strength and their power. Uh, by getting um, a, a person to take off their coat, to take off their outer coat, and so the first contest was the wind, and the wind blew and blew and stormed and stormed, and everything that that happened only caused uh, the man to cling cl- tighter to his coat. And after a series of time, the wind was exhausted with all it had done to win this contest. And so then the sun said, "All right, just watch," and just radiant heat went forth, and very quickly he moved, removed his garment. Um, this is the power of Jesus' kingdom. The power of Jesus' kingdom is that the kindness of God, as Paul says in Romans 2, leads you to repentance. Our repentance does not get God to be kind. That's religion. That's the antithesis. That's the opposite of what Jesus did. Our repentance does not get God to be kind. His kindness, when we receive it in our hearts, it opens us, uh, again, like warmth will cause a flower to bloom. It opens us. Uh, to the love of God and so the advertising agency of the Holy Trinity has made a strategic decision here and that is that the future of the credibility of Jesus in the world is going to be determined by the force and the power uh, of visible observable love and it's something that he says, all people, whatever lifestyle, background, will be able to make a judgment as to that reality. That's the force. And the second part is that this focus of this kind of intense love, and Jesus says, as I have loved you, which we're going to look a little bit about. But the, the focus of this seems to narrow because I want you to love one another. Now, you've got to think of this upper room scene. You got real diverse personalities here. I mean, you've got, again, Matthew who was a collaborator basically funding the oppressive reign of the Romans. So that's one, you know, you could say political extreme among Jesus' followers. Cooperating to the point of really subverting and, and furnishing funds so that Roman soldiers could march into people's kitchens and take all their food or do worse things to them. That's one example. Let's go along to get along. And then you've got Simon the Zealot, and probably accompanied by Judas Iscariot, who had the point of view that you should forcibly kill, violently kill the Romans and throw them off. You've got these two points of view huddled in the twelve you've got John and Peter, and, and I have to say, I'm a John person in terms of who I really resonate with. Peter can can certainly win points for his, I'm going to obey as soon as I get the command, you know, I'm out of the water, I'm I'm doing this kind of thing. But John is the one who's leaning on Jesus' breast. He's the contemplative one. He's a bit mystical in a sense, you might say. What did he hear? Because his, his ear was always right near the heart of Jesus. And I love this scene in John 13 where this context is: is. Peter is doing what we should never do but often do. Giving Jesus advice. Right? Uh, Jesus says, I'm gonna wash your feet and give you an example. And Peter's like, No, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, Well, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part in me. Then Peter says, Oh, in that case, my advice is that you wash all of me. Okay? So he's doing this. What is John doing? John is just resting in Jesus. And, and I think because John, that was John's posture, what we get in John's gospel. Um, is just an, an amazing intimate portrait of Christ. John is the only one who tells us all kinds of things about Jesus that we would have never known from anybody else, uh, and and so he pulses. So I I I think like in America we need a good injection of John's personality because we're big into the Peter telling Jesus how to do it, developing our strategies, our plans, and all of these these kind of things that make us sound like we're the Marriott Corporation in a planning meeting, and there's not much real presence and drawing near. But Jesus brought that whole gang together. And there was enough freedom that they could express their diversity of perspectives and they could even express their brokenness. You know, jockeying in position. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to jo- to die and they're arguing about who's gonna ride shotgun with Jesus. And he just said, I'm going to die. Again, it's like, it's like one of us saying, I think I'm having a heart attack and then your two friends arguing about who's going to ride shotgun with you as you get there. It's just like, this community Jesus built, was, it was diverse, and yet he was schooling them in love. And he was saying, the test that I'm going to allow the world to cause you to take is whether they see love coursing through your community. And this is what makes it not a restrictive focus, John's focus is, God so loved the world, he gave Jesus so that whosoever, that's everybody, and he says, now, I've got a community of people I've poured myself into for these three years, and I have designed them to be on display for the world. So, so don't think that this is a narrowing of the heart of God, like, this is actually the way that God reaches the world is by His the intensification of his presence and his power uh, and uh, his formation among this smaller group. You know, if, if you have a the source of a river, focusing on the source of the river does not mean you're not interested in its, in its outflow. Having a power center doesn't mean that you've concentrated your attention. That means that you have a power center so that the power can go out. And and Jesus here is saying this is this is the core evaluation and test of whether you've been with Him. You know we we sometimes say about our kids when they're younger, you know, um, we don't want them to hang out with the wrong kind of people because obviously our kids are never the wrong kind of people. It's other people that are the wrong kind of people, right? And there's certain things that there's certain traits that as a parent sometimes you notice your children are picking up from certain things it's like obviously they are never the conveyors of these things these things just attach to them for other from others right uh it's never from our house it's always that but but from jesus he's saying the one contagion that jesus had is is if you're in his presence and you begin to get who he is and you begin to implement that it will cause you to be more loving Uh, Do you know, an interesting thing that I I just noted in my study of scripture in the last year, I think, is that Jesus only used this word command, it's only on the lips of Jesus, two places. This word um, uh, for command, two places. One of the places is in a very familiar passage if you've been around church world for a while, Matthew 28, when he says, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Okay. And it's interesting, the word command is in this passage where he says, all people will know that you're my disciples. So what is a disciple? A disciple, let's be very clear, not everybody in this room is a disciple. Not everybody in this room is a believer. Some of you would say, well, I'm a believer and I think I'm a disciple, but you're not really a disciple. A disciple is someone who has determined that the most important thing in their life is following christ that there is nothing else more important than the following of jesus christ a disciple is not someone who does a lot of christian activities necessarily or who knows a lot of biblical truth because you can know that truth and not be really interested in living it out but a disciple is someone who you may have just become overwhelmed by the greatness of who jesus is and want to and become a fan of his and you say but i really want to what Jesus has to be implemented in my life. And so a disciple is someone, and I like the way Dallas Willard sets this up in his excellent books on discipleship, is a disciple is someone who has embraced the joy of being an apprentice of Jesus, which means that Jesus is allowed to constantly, that we constantly seek Jesus to coach us and make revisions in our life every single day. And and that is what it means to be a disciple is that we say the most important thing is implementing uh, the character and the formation and the expression of Jesus Christ for me and to let him constantly interact with me and say, what should the tone of my conversation be in this difficulty? How, how should I respond to this challenge? What should I do with my anxious thoughts? What should I do with maybe my thoughts that say that I'm unworthy and that begin to bring shame upon myself? A disciple is saying, Lord, I relinquish my own control of this. I want you to fill it. And so Jesus says a disciple is willing to to do everything that he commands. And here he says, I give you a new command. And you know what the new command is? It's to love as Jesus loved. And so what we can say, if you want to simplify discipleship all the way down, you can say a disciple is someone who takes the intensity of Jesus' love and obeys it at every point of human relationship. That's the, that's the amazing, wonderful focus of this command. It's, it's not a narrowing of the command, but it is an intensifying saying, this is what it means to follow me. If you follow Jesus, and this is why discipleship, in a sense, is part of the good news. It's not of the good news of forgiveness which you do nothing to earn or deserve, but it is part of the good news that says to every single one of us, to every single person on the planet, if Jesus not only invites you to be saved and to turn from your sins and to receive the forgiveness that he has for you, that he has done it all, but he also says, I'm also gonna allow you to follow me. I'm gonna allow your life and my life to count a million years from now. And the reason it's going to count is because we have brought our energies and our powers and whatever gifts and abilities the Lord has loaned to us into the stream of his love. I mean, I, isn't this an attractive portrayal of who Jesus is? That He's He is so confident. He says that if you're learning from me, it will be obvious to other people that you have become a more loving person. This is the... Trademark. It's, it's, again, not a narrowing of the focus, but a broadening. Jesus is always about, he always is telling us that our joy is going to be found in, in a greater and greater stream of impact. I was just kind of realizing this this week as I was enjoying an Auntie Anne's pretzel in the mall. I just want to tell you, I had a really sad moment. There's kind of a mixture of feelings, you know, as we sell the house that have 20 years of memories in and all this. And I want to tell you that I have tasted Auntie Anne's pretzels many, many times, but I have never actually ever eaten one. You know where I'm going? I've never eaten a whole one. Every time uh, I would eat an Auntie Anne's pretzel, my memory is, it's kind of like trying to eat French fries on the boardwalk in a sea of seagulls. I remember being flocked by my children and they were all around. Now Liz is gluten free so she wasn't ever, you know, but we were all like picking off pieces and usually it left me kind of saying, oh man, I would have loved to have a little bit more. But it was a happy communal moment of joy. And I have to say like I almost got a little choked up and I didn't even want to eat the whole thing because it was like thinking like Naomi and Nathaniel should be fighting over the last pieces and I should be like jockeying for my last piece and Because this is where joy comes from, you know? And I'm just like, I'm realizing something that I should have known that all the time that I might have fantasized about eating a whole Auntie Anne's pretzel in peace just for me, that it left me very empty. (laughs) It's the same with church. It's the same with small group. It's the same with ministry that if it ever becomes us four, shut the door, no more. If it ever becomes like just an, an exclusive sharing session of intimacy and we're not in a sense thinking or maybe even putting an empty seat in front of us and saying there's someone else who needs this kind of fellowship. It, when, it, when a church loses the ability to say, yes, we are wanting to be formed in the image of Christ, but we're wanting to do that because this kind of force of love and grace is where the power of God intersects with every broken person, not just me. And so... The focus of this is not a narrowing of Christ's heart, but it's rather, it's an intensification so that it becomes a launching pad into others' lives. That's, that's the, the focus. The force is grace and love, but the focus is this ever-increasing, this ever-increasing force. And what it means is there will be an otherworldly community of love. There will be something that people cannot explain I'm sure there, there are some of you sitting here and, and some of you haven't even declared this to your family members. I remember talking to someone that changed my understanding of preaching a long time ago and they said, you know what, um, in the confines of my pastor's study and I really try to call it a study so that I never become an quote, office person. In my study, someone sat there and said, I've been an unbeliever for 10 years but I've decided not to declare it to my family and so I come every week but I lost the trust and the reality of who God was. But you know what? If I told people that that in my family, they'd make me a prayer project. They would, you know, all of a sudden I would be the target of conversation. So I've not told anybody, but I'm telling you. And they entrusted me with that to begin to have conversation about the place where in the midst of broken things that they could not unsee, they had lost, they had tragically lost their faith in Christ. I I, want to say, I, I see you. I don't know who, but I see you. Some of you are here. Some of you, that describes where you are. you'd have to say, "I lost my faith long ago, but it's too much trouble to really declare it. I'll just go besides, the coffee's pretty good, and the music team sounds great, and I don't mind listening to occasionally glean something out of a talk, but I really don't have faith and I'm going to say, I hope this is a place that we can be honest about that without feeling that we're a project <laughs> that, that we are a place that can can intersect with all kinds of places and know that God already knows, and He's already there, and 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 this is the community that doesn't doesn't just say, "All right, well, we we don't even care where you are; we don't even care about human brokenness." But when it says, "We're in a place where we know we all are getting washed and in need of washing constantly," the whole context of this John thirteen was Jesus says, "If you know these things, you're blessed. If you do them," <laughs> and and He wasn't, I don't think, just talking about inconveniencing ourselves and doing. Maybe difficult work of loving one another, although that that's entailed. You know, I mean that these verses sometimes mean for me that you know somebody needs a ride to go to the airport at you know an unheard of hour at like four a.m. Then the spirit nudges me and says, "Go do that for them," and do it with joy. And virtually every time there's there's a gift in there for us when we do that. Right? That's that's part of it. But what I think the deeper meaning of John 13 is if you you know these things. You're blessed if you do them. It says when you see your brother or sister in Christ and you see their weakness or you see they, they, are, they have been soiled by the world or they've been captive to something that has tainted and harmed their witness, don't recoil from them but move toward them. Don't move toward them with boiling water to scald their feet but move toward them, recognizing the exquisite, lavish, tender care that God has given to you. This is what holiness does. I'm reading this great book by Kelly Capick on knowing your limits. And he exposed a lie that I think I had believed and maybe preached. And he says, you know, we sometimes speak of God as if he cannot stand the presence of sin. Have you ever heard a preacher say that? God cannot stand the presence of sin. God cannot stay in the presence of sin. I think I've preached that sometimes, maybe based on Habakkuk two, where it says God does, you know, cannot even look upon evil. And he says that is such a dangerous mischaracterization of God. And he expanded on it. He said, "It's not. Think of it this way. Any of you uh, have arachnophobia? Don't like spiders?" Don't like snakes. I was I was I was with a uh, a realtor the other day, and we were looking at a home in Elkton, and a huge black snake walked right underneath my foot. I mean, the thing was this long, and I was kind of proud of myself because I didn't jump back. Uh, but the realtor about hit the you know I mean, whoo, you know wipeout. And but here here's the thing. So there's there's some people who are afraid of snakes, right? But it would be it would kind of maybe describe a weak person, a timid person, a person who, and especially like a little spider. I mean, there's spiders in every room that we go into, right? And someone says, I can't be in the same presence of, of the room as a spider. No, I, here's what I want. I, I want a God where sin cannot stand the presence of him. <laughs> I, I don't want a God who can't stand the presence of sin, marches in judging me, harshly you know giving me the scolding uh, causing me to retreat cover up in shame collapse no 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 i I want a god who my sin cannot stand in his presence and so my sin melts my sin owns up what needs to be owned up My, my sin relinquishes its grip on me that that's what i want and that's the beauty of this loving community. I think it, it shows a kind of otherworldly love that people say, I may not know what you Christians believe, but I am gripped by a reality and I my unbelief is startled by the beauty of how you actually treat each other. That That's the standard of Jesus. I, I've seen it imperfectly in church, but I have to say this, I think it's the only place I've really seen it where we hold to both truth and love, where we hold to both grace and love. It's a lot weaker in church than it ought to be. I'll tell you that. I have, I have a seat to see enough of that. But I will tell you, I, I agree with Philip Yancey who, who almost left church because he didn't find much grace in church and had a little sojourn out in the world. And he says, I came back to church because while the grace that I saw in church was too weak, I couldn't find any grace at all in the world. I, I think that's some of our context. I, I remember one time, and, and th- this is what, what the love of God does because the love of God can, can confront the bully in love but free the person who's bullied. And I remember one time I was, I think in my 20s as a pastor and uh, we got involved with this woman who was in a, an abusive relationship Lovely young woman. And we assembled a move-out team, kind of ad hoc, got the U-Haul, got to get her delivered. If you know anything about that situation, it can be kind of dangerous. So, you know, I got a team of some guys together. And one of the volunteers was, was one of our most advanced in age elders who just brought a kind of presence of grace with him. Uh, into this event, and we, as we moved in the apartment. There were all kinds of things that she wanted moved, and I know you know some were like large liquor bottles and different things. But the most arresting thing that she had lined up to be moved was a a life size picture of herself, completely naked, uh, except she was covered by a boa constrictor that was wrapping around her in strategic parts. And it was this picture that wound up in the hands of one of the most godly people. That I have ever known, the most pure, holy, righteous, grace-filled person that that I may have ever walked the planet with. My wife and I were talking about this today, uh, and as he took that up, she was just filled with shame. I can just remember her face just turning crimson red, and I remember this guy, Dick Hake, was his name, and he said, "There is no shame here, and we will carry this out for you." And he he took it, turned it around. Gave her a sense of covering and ministered grace. And he just delivered a seminar that, you know, for all the things I wish I could unsee in church, that one, that moment of covering, of grace, of goodness flowing out of someone who had a pure heart, that, folks, that's the church. Folks, that's a picture of the cross. That's a picture of of the hideous, confrontation with sin that Jesus was about to have and and what I love about that is in that confrontation that was one that made no excuse for the abuse of the man who was misusing her but then came into the heart of that situation to free the one who was being abused And when I see that and hear that don't you want to say with me say Lord Jesus make me like that <laughs> We we've all got just one life to live, and we don't know how many more. What people say: if you live to be eighty, you've got four thousand weeks. So I don't know how many more weeks I have. Four thousand weeks doesn't sound like a lot, Um, you know. It's but to say, Lord, for whatever weeks I have, I want every one of them. I want every day in some way to be a manifestation that I am being schooled, and I am yes having to make constant revisions. You know what, you know what repentance is? It's basically revision from the ground up. That's what it is. We don't get to give God a perfect paper. We don't got to give get to give God a perfect life. Guess what? That's already been done for us by Jesus. But what we can give God is an honest life that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want you, I want you to remake me. That's really the essence of what it means to come to Christ the first time, where you say, Lord, I see the gap between the greatness and wonder of who you are and who I am, and I rely upon Jesus to make it up. But do you know what? Do you know how you grow in Christ? The same exact way. The same exact way. Of, it's by faith, it's by coming to him, it's by honesty, it's, it's by humility. And it's, it says without fail, God gives grace to that person. I think of this, this is the new narrative that God wants that He makes new to us every single day. And I can say this: I really I am at a point where I'm not impressed by any kind of programs. Programs they're sometimes necessary places to create handles and connections with people. I'm not downing programs, but I'm saying every church can have programs, and I'm convinced a church is not its programs. A church is its culture. A church is whether it functions in this way. If if there's any, quote, program to push, push the one that Jesus pushes here. Um, Because this program of love, of of a gospel-defined love, is never gonna burn out people who give themselves to it. It will only replenish anyone who volunteers in it. And the program is called love. It's called love one another in the way Jesus loved us. No one's ever been loved that way except when Christ came removing every obstacle, pursuing us and saying, I'm here and the father wants his daughter back, the father wants his son back, the father wants his children back, and I will brave anything that comes at me to bring that person back to God. That's that kind of all-inclusive, you don't even need a building for it, mobile party that invites the outsiders in and acts like a magnet, to all people who've distanced themselves from God because here's the reality. The program that God has for all of us sick and broken people is is through the love of Christ. And once we've received it, the great glory of God is that he calls us to transmit it to others. What would it be if we were filled with the fullness of God in this way and this was what Christ was known for? I invite you to give yourself anew to this. I invite you to plunge yourself so deeply into the apprenticeship of Christ that, you know, you may, like me, find the danger of saying, oh God, in my own nature, I have very rarely, if ever, really approximated what your love looks like to other people. But through Christ... There's not a person here who can't claim this prom- promise and say, Christ, I'm your disciple. You said that if I'm your, in your school, people will notice that I become a loving person. Claim that. Claim that promise. Enroll in his school by grace. And then seek that he showcase that, not for your glory, but he says, so that all people will know that you are mine. Your character shows it. The advertising agency of the Holy Trinity has put all its eggs in that basket. Let's put our focus and our request there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. There is no one in history who has ever spoken words like these. They are so audacious and yet so hopeful. And so we pray, Lord, in all of the interactions of our lives, in all the narratives that we're we're living out, oh Lord, will you make us disciples enrolled in the school of Christ's love? Would you show us that kind of courageous love? that can confront and disarm bullies and not be a passive quiet bystander even as it frees the bullied? Can you show us that kind of break the walls down love and can you move in our hearts? We know, Lord, this is what you've promised that the church that is learning, the church that is learning from you will show evidence of this trait in a remarkable way. We seek you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Would you please stand and join us as we close our time together? By our love, by our love, yes, still... them okay.
0: We need a little power here. We need power here. We leave that awareness. This is what God wants to do. If he wants to do anything, he wants us to fulfill this promise and this priority of Christ. So I invite you to lift up your hearts to your God. Look expectantly. This is a limitless benediction I'm going to pronounce on you. We sometimes limit God, but he is unlimited in his power to do this. So lift up your hearts and open them to receive this. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. God's people said, Amen.
1: They'll know us by your love